Welcome to Wisdom Trek with Gramps. I am Guthrie Chamberlain and we are on day 2266 of our trek. The purpose of Wisdom Trek is to create a legacy of wisdom, to seek out discernment and insights, and to boldly grow where few have chosen to grow before. We are continuing the messages I delivered at Putnam Congregational Church over the past couple of years. This is the 17th of a 25-week message series covering the book of Hebrews. This message is titled, Enter, But Come Clean. I pray that it will be a conduit of learning and encouragement for you. As we continue our extended series of messages in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, if you remember two weeks ago, we explored the great benefits of believers because of Christ, one for all, once for all, and free for all sacrifice for our sins. Now this week, we see what's called a right response. That is, we should not neglect the opportunity to draw near to God and to come clean in our own personal lives. Now the passage today is Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 39. It starts on page 1873 of your pew Bible. Now it's sort of an extended passage, and it's a little bit difficult in its wording. But follow along with me as I read. This section is titled in the Bible, A Call to Persevere in Faith. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have the confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from the guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess, for he who has promised is faithful. And let us now consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as we see the day approaching. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sin is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of the raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who has rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that has sanctified them, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know who, him who said, It is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Remember those days, earlier days, after you received the light, when you endured the great conflict of suffering? Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had a better and lasting possession. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done, all, have done the will of God, you will receive what is, he has promised. For in just a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay, and by my righteous one will live by faith. And I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. But we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. In the first 10 chapters of Hebrews, we see over and over again, from various anger, angles, the author of Hebrews has evidence that Jesus is superior as our high priest. 
No other priest could fling open the doors of heaven for us as sinners. No other person could qualify as the mediator between a holy God and we as unholy humanity. No pious person could live up to the physical demands of the precise demands of the law. No sacrifice could completely pay the price for our sin and cancel the debt for sinners. That is, except for Jesus. The point has been stated and restated. As Paula mentioned a couple weeks ago, it seems like every week we go over the same thing. Because the author of Hebrews needs to make sure that we understand the implications of falling back to the old ways that we once lived. For the congregation there that the letter was written to, it was falling back to those old sacrifices and rituals that covered sin but could never take sin away. Now the emphasis shifts again from Christ's superiority to our responsibility. In strong and somber terms, the writer looks into his reader's eyes and says to them, no matter how you look at it, the person and the work of Christ is superior to everything. Now here is what I want you to do about it. At this point, the proof of Christ's primacy in this re reality of our responsibility is so overwhelming that the implications are clear. If we don't trust and obey God completely, we're in big trouble. Now this leads us to the fourth of five warnings in the book of Hebrews. Now you might recall, if you've been here most weeks, in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, to pay attention lest you drift away from your foundation. The second warning passage in chapters 3 and 4 urged us to beware of a hard heart. The third encompassed the hard teachings of falling away in chapter 6, where it says, don't stray away from the path of spiritual growth. And now this fourth warning passage, the author shouts out, stand firm in your faith or be judged by God. At the end of this passage, we'll know two things very clearly. First, that God requires that his children trust and obey him. And second, if we don't, serious consequences are in store for our lives. We'll walk away from this passage with a choice. And this choice is in verse 39 of our passage today. And let me read it from the New Living Translation this time. But we are not like those who turn away from God to their own destruction. We are the faithful ones whose souls will be saved. So as we start back in verses 19 through 21, under the arrangement of the old covenant and the priesthood, the holy of holies, situated in the back of the tabernacle, the most sacred place in the entire world, was in that holy of holies. Only the high priest could enter that holy of holies, and only through a precise pro process of a ritual cleansing. And he could only enter one day a year on the Day of Atonement, for everyone else, even if you were a priest and served in the temple daily, it was off limits. When the temple replaced the tabernacle in Jerusalem, they hung this huge curtain up in the temple. It separated the holy place from the holy of holies. On that day when Christ died, that curtain was ripped from top to bottom, completely in half, signifying that the temple holy of holies was now open to everyone. Every one of us could enter. When Jesus died, that massive curtain, curtain was ripped. That's told to us in Matthew chapter 27, verse 51. And it signaled a dramatic change between the old covenant with its practices and rituals 
a new covenant, which we have access to God. No longer did God said, restricted area, keep out. Only the high priest and only once a year are you ever, ever able to enter that holy of holies. But no longer was that the truth. Once that curtain was torn asunder, ripped in two from top to bottom. In verse 19 of Hebrews 10, he says, welcome. Please come in. All of us are welcome to God's throne. We have access to God. He invites all people, Jews or Gentiles, men or women, adults and children, the rich and the poor, to enter the sacred place, representing a personal, intimate, permanent relationship with the living God. Now, if you'll look at your bulletin insert on the side, it says, enter, but come clean at the top. Those of us who may hesitate to enter that holy place, the holy of holies, or we shuffle our feet because we're shameful for a way our lives are lived. The author of Hebrews strengthens our confidence to say, come. He gives us two essential facts that summarizes what he has been asserting in the previous nine chapters. The first essential fact is Jesus' blood, his perfect sacrifice for sin, has opened the way to enter into a personal relationship with God in verses 19 and 20. Now, a commentator by the last name of Brown comments on the author's imagery in verse 20. Just as the heavy temple curtain was torn from top to bottom on that good first Good Friday, so the pure and spotless body of Christ was torn asunder for us. He shed his blood, and we can approach God, not barred like they were in the Old Testament, but free access to all. And the essential, second essential fact is that Jesus remains our great high, great high priest over the house of God, the temple, as it's represented in verse 21. Now, the image of the house of God appears several places in the New Testament. The book of Hebrews refers to it directly as the Old Testament people of God, that now they have access to it because he was speaking or writing to a group of Hebrews who were so steeped in that tradition and rituals of the past. When Christ was the heir of God. However, even tucked in the discussion of the house, the temple that they referred to in Hebrews 3, we catch a glimpse of two related aspects. The New Testament community as a church, us as a believers, group of believers gathering together, and the millions of churches around the world who are gathering, gathering together today are God's church. It's the temple of God. Also, we as individuals are God's temple because we have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. So we individually, and we as a community of believers, are the temple of God. The context of Hebrews 10 the image of the house is drawing from that temple, the tabernacle or the temple of the Old Testament. It's a holy place expressly set apart for the worship of God. Now, we want to, out of reverence for God, treat certainly the place where we gather together as a group of believers to be a place that's sacred. But the house, the building itself, is not what the church is. It's we as individuals gathering together as a community of believers is the church of God, the temple that was once a single place, but is now throughout the world meeting together. 
When we look at the New Testament, it applies the image of the temple in a spiritual sense. The understanding of the image here in Hebrews 10 is narrowed down to two ideas, which I mentioned. We as gathered together as a group of believers, the church of God, and we as our bodies individually, with that Holy Spirit indwelling our lives, are God's temple. Both of these ideas are ultimately in view, and indeed, he never separates the individual from the community, or the community from the individual, because we are God's temple. However, the personal nature of this passage today, commands and warnings that are in the remainder of Hebrews 10, suggests the concept that the house and the implications for the, each of us as individuals. We cannot skirt in on somebody else's coattails. We individually are responsible for our relationship with God. The author doesn't deny that Christ is our great high priest as a community of believers, but he also wants us to remember that Christ is my great high priest, and he's your great high priest individually. We move on to verses 22 through 25. Based on the facts that we just looked at, and because each of us is accountable to our high priest on a personal, individual level, the writer sets forth three commands that are also in your bulletin insert today. These are all introduced with let us, meaning we as individuals and we as believers. Let us draw near to God is the first one in verse 22. We've already seen the saving work of Christ and has cleansed our conscience from sin and guilt, as was written in chapter 9, verse 14. And then now we see the internal cleansing of our individual hearts in verse 22 of this chapter 10. The internal, invisible dimensions of being should mark, be marked by the washing of our bodies. The external, visible aspects of our lives. Now, though the phrase that's written, our bodies washed with pure water, could be taken as a reference to water baptism, as a sign of that, the author's emphasis is on what that baptism actually signifies. The dedication of a person's life to follow Christ through a changed lifestyle. There's no change in our lives. Now, what is the baptism representing? That's the exhortation for us to draw near in this passage, invites believers who have been eternally forgiven by faith and commitment, committing their lives to the obedience that goes deeper in our relationship with him. The second of those commands is, let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess, in verse 23. The term profess, or in the New Living Translation, it's a, um, translated affirm, comes from a Greek word, homologia, and it refers to an expression of allegiance as an action or professing. But it can also refer to a statement of allegiance as we put our hands over our hearts when we do a pledge of allegiance to our flag. This is both an outward sign and a verbal representation of our allegiance to our country. The same and even more so applies to us as believers. Because the emphasis on this passage is both internal and external, the conformity of the whole person in Christ by faith and obedience is required. Yes, we have faith. That's the internal. We have obedience. That's the external. The author probably made in his mind the confession of both words and actions. You notice the confession that centers in a hope rooted in God's promise in verse 23 with a strong confidence in that superiority of Christ's priesthood 
we can continue to confess him with our mouths, and then our lives will emulate his life, serving him as our, the representative in the world that desperately needs to see Christ in us. And the third command is, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds in verse 24 and 25. Here the author shifts the emphasis from the individual to the community. How are we to act as a group of believers, a community of believers? But the shift isn't like shifting from an, a manual transmission from a low gear to a high gear. It's more like shifting from one foot to another foot. We're all the temple, the body of Christ. So it's the emphasis shifts from us as individuals to the community of believers. It's like shifting from one foot to another. We're still the body of Christ, but the emphasis has shifted slightly. Notice the confession centers on a hope rooted in God's promise, a strong confidence of the superior priesthood of Christ, and we can continue to confess him with our mouths and our lives. As members of Christ's body, the church, we are responsible for living lives of faith and obediently and positively stirring others on to spiritual growth. That's part of our responsibility. That's part of why we gather together as a community of believers to encourage one another to love and good deeds. As an external expression of drawing near to Christ, we should encourage others motivated by our love for them. The internal motivation that the external manifestation of that is then we perform good deeds for one another and for the greater community at large. To this, we simply can't retreat into our corner as sometimes we feel like cradling and just being by ourselves, cutting ourselves off from the rest of the body of Christ. I think all of us have that feeling at times, that tendency at times, where we would like to isolate ourselves from everyone else. But that's not what we are to do as believers and as part of the body of Christ. Verse 25, it says, not giving up meeting together. As some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Then verses 24 and 25 has important implications for attending gatherings, such as we do on Sunday mornings for worship, for instruction, for fellowship, for expression in faith, hope and love, as was listed in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. But we can't fulfill the command to spur one another on if we're living isolated lives. We must force ourselves to get out there to impact fellow believers and to impact the world for God. But neither is it helpful for those who are uncommitted, who are rebellious, who are unloving, who are disobedient believers in Christ together, community with one another, because that would not be spurring one another on in love and good works. So for those that are struggling with that, that is a sign that they need to turn and gather in fellowship and love. The notion of individuals, Christians, have something positive to contribute to the community. It presupposes that the individuals have been striving to come clean and then as they draw near to God. As we look at verses 26 through 31, what will happen if we as believers neglect the commands that we just looked at? If we fail to draw near, to profess, to spur one another on, the author presents a strong warning for those who, don't, who do the opposite, who shrink back 
from the intimate fellowship with God, who hide from the light of our confession to forsake the community of faith. In a broader argument in Hebrews chapter 10 here, these verses presents a negative side of two contrasting categories of people. And it's summed up in that final verse once again. But we do not belong to those who shrink back and who are destroyed. It goes back to the second part of that verse, but to those who have faith and are saved. That is our responsibility. And that will be addressed in the next section in, in a little bit more detail. But the first question we must answer in verse 26, because it has some stern warnings in this passage, who does the we refer to when the author writes, if we deliberately, if we deliberately keep on sinning? Who is he referring to? Now, some say it's unsaved people. People with an ungenuine profession of faith as evidenced by failing to cease from their sin. Now, others refer to it as ones who were, those who were genuinely saved, but then they lose their salvation due to apostasy or unbelief. True believers turning their backs and denying their faith. And because of the language, the imagery, the, even the structure of the warning of this passage is similar to that of we looked at in Hebrews chapter 6, Bible scholars usually treat the recipients of, of these two warning passages belonging to the same category. Either those who are not truly saved or who lose their salvation, or those who are saved but they face severe judgment. Now, I can't say dogmatically that if somebody who is, is professed to save, accept Christ as their Savior and then completely turn their backs on God and says, I no longer believe if they're still eternally saved. But I tend to, my view tends to fall into this third category. The warnings in Hebrews chapter 10 addresses those who have genuinely received the salvation by grace through faith, but those through backsliding for intentional rejecting and living as God would want us to can enter a state of sin in which there is no possibility of return where you go so far and God says, that's it. I'm not going no longer to woo you to live a life for me. I think it's as such, they will face at least a temporal judgment and certainly a loss of heavenly rewards, but not a loss of their eternal life. Now, when Christ returns a second time to set up his kingdom here on earth, his global Eden, where we'll live with him forever, what will our responsibilities be in that life of eternity? Will it be impacted if we refuse to live a godly life? What will our responsibilities be for eternity? Could be impacted here. A commentator by the last name of Guthrie writes, the first plural we indicates that the writer of Hebrews identifies himself with those who have received this warning. Moreover, another commentator by the last name of Allen states, such language strongly indicates the warning is addressed to believers. Therefore, we shouldn't understand this as a warning to unbelievers who have experienced just a mere brush with the gospel, but have never really made a heart commitment for Christ. The people in view here, I think, in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 through 31, have received, in verse 26, it says, the knowledge of the truth. This is a strong Greek word for knowledge, and it's epigonosis. And it's used as a passage of full, genuine, saving knowledge of God. 
So the writer of Hebrews appears very strongly to be addressing those who have received salvation through faith, not just a faint awareness of it. This is confirmed by the fact that the knowledge of the truth had been received, not simply heard, but actually received in their hearts. Also, the fact that the author alludes to God judging, in verse 30, his people. So it's a strong indication that he is speaking to those who are saved. And it further indicates that we refers to those genuine believers, the people of God. So the author addresses a potential category of people who are genuine believers, but who live contrary in their lives to faith and obedience in Christ. And it's so contrary that visibly they're indistinguishable from unbelievers. There's no difference between theirs and those who don't know the Lord. And they are believers who have backed away rather than drawing nearer to God. They have withdrawn from the community of spiritual growth, the community of encouragement, the community of accountability. And that's part of our community here, to be accountable one to another for how we're living. As such, they betrayed their confession of faith in the person and the work of Christ, who is the only one who can save us from our sins. They have been born again, but they choose to continually sin willfully, knowingly, and continually in verse 26. And is it to just those of us, as all of us do, who occasionally stumble in our faith, in our walk with God, who maybe have a season of rebellion in our life where we fade away from our Christian walk, or struggle with the temptation and sin that we face on an everyday basis, because all of us will face that, no matter who you are. This is referring to those who have completely rejected their walk with God and has turned the other way. This is outright opposition to the gracious, loving, merciful Father. Again, employing the argument that I mentioned a few weeks ago from the lesser to the greater, the author of Hebrews notes that under the Old Covenant, those who rebelled against the law received a harsh judgment in verse 28. And he goes on to say, how much more should those be judged who blatantly rebel against the grace of God under the superior covenant established by Christ's death and his resurrection in verse 29? So those who have opposed the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are in a high-handed revolt against the Master, the God of the universe. And such hard and unrepentant sinners can, can expect, it says, a terrifying raging fire and vengeance from God in verse 30 and 31. In short, God disciplines his children severely if they cross that line that's reaching the point of no return saying that my spirit will no longer minister to woo you back. They continue in willful defiance of him. And as such, those people who have reached that point, God may choose to take their lives physically, as the example of in Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 10, of Ananias and Sapphira, who sold a plot of land and went to the... the apostles and says, this is what we receive for our land. We want to help the church. But they had actually received more. And both Ananias and Sapphira were struck dead because of their lie to the Holy Spirit. In that case, 
or in the best case scenario, if you don't lose your life, if you've rejected, if accepted Christ as your Savior and then you turned your back on him, if he doesn't take you prematurely from this life, there's a potential because of, you'll lose your heavenly reward in the judgment seat of Christ. And how I envision that is our place in all of eternity where we're going to serve with Christ. What will our position be in that global Eden? And we saw our discussion of the warning passage in Hebrews chapter 6 a few weeks back. The author views this scenario, scenario as somebody going to the point of no return as a very rarity. It doesn't happen very often. And it's those, only those who completely turn their backs on what they believe. But it is still a reality. It could happen. It hasn't happened to the readers of Hebrews yet. But if some of them continue down the path that they're heading away from the grace in Christ and that new covenant, it could happen to them. And that's what he's warning them about. Don't let this happen to you where you so turn from your faith in Christ that you no longer serve him, especially in a community of believers. As we move on to the last portion of this passage, 32 through 39, from the frightening projection of the ultimate consequences of a hardened rebellion, for those who shrink back to destruction, in verse 39, to the author turns to an appealing vision of those who are faithful and are followers as followers to Christ. In verses 32 through 38, those who have faith and are saved. He fully believes that the readers, his readers of his letter, are in the second category. That they haven't turned their backs on God. He fully believes that the evidence of the quality of their faith and obedience have been demonstrated already in their Christian lives. He reminds us readers of that the former days after their initial enlightenment and coming to realize the saving knowledge of Christ. They endured great suffering, public repro reproaches, tribulations, persecution, even trials, but they remained steadfast in their Christian witness. And they didn't shy away from suffering in Christ. They showed genuine love and concern for others in need in verse 34. And they demonstrated a priority of a heavenly reward over earthly treasures. Their possessions, their lands, their buildings were being confiscated because of their faith in Christ. And we as Americans, in our independence, we would hate for somebody to come in and confiscate what is rightfully ours. But he, the Christians of those days were under such persecution that they were even getting their properties confiscated. But they still remained faithful. In verses 26 through 31, the writer of Hebrews afflicted the comfortable with a strong warning. But now in 32 through 39, he comforts the afflicted with great promises. The need of the former group of the potential drifters was that of repentance. Those who were wandering back to their old ways and traditions, thinking that the animal sacrifices could cleanse them from their sin, needed repentance, needed to turn back, because Christ is the only one who can save us from our sins. The need of the latter group, those who were suffering persecution were still enduring, needed to continue to endure. It's because we've already demonstrated the ability to endure the hardship that they did. Nothing should stand in the way of moving forward in their confident commitment and their faith and obedience to Christ. Now, it's normal for us, even today, in as much luxury as we live in in, in our country, that we go, grow weary. We just grow tired. 
We want to rest when things get rough. We want to retreat from the obstacles when they seem insurmountable in our lives. The original audience of this letter was facing such mountainous oppositions. They saw the steep incline and the rocky trail that was ahead of them. And because of such, they were tempted to turn back. We were so comfortable in the synagogues, in the temple, sacrificing. Let's go back to those traditions, but those traditions never saved them. Only Christ could save them. And the author of Hebrews was encouraging you to keep climbing, to move forward. The writer mixes encouragement with warnings in this passage, paraphrasing and weaving in two passages from the Old Testament. The passage of encouragement, which holds on, tells us to hold on until the trials have passed, comes from Isaiah chapter 26, verse 20. And the passage that warns of switched judgment for those who fall away from the life of faith comes from Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. And those are verses 37 and 38 in our passage today. His message is clear for them and for us. Hang in there. The journey is almost over. Even if we live 120 or 150 years, our lives are so short compared to eternity. So our journey is almost over. The reward is worth it. The consequences of falling away are too severe. Even though he couches the encouragement with ominous warnings, the author confidently reflects the condition of his readers. But we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. So what's the application of today's passage? And it's on the other side of your bulletin insert. The overall application is we need to have a right response. Now it's been said, great preachers have always been good at comforting the afflicted and afflicting the comforting, comfortable. One such preacher that falls in this category was Jonathan Edwards, the 18th century Puritan, who along with the luminaries of George Whitfield and Charles Wesley, or John Wesley, aroused the Christians of the world from their ho-hum slumber from the first week, in the first week awakening. In what may be one of his most famous sermons that he ever preached, John Wesley on July 8, 1741 in Enfield, Connecticut, Edwards moors and more than medals in those melancholy people that were part of his audience that day, preaching a sermon that has gone down in history is titled Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And he read from his manuscript, so it was said, in a calm manner, a collective style. He wasn't ranting and raving. Edwards allowed the powerful words themselves to do the work piercing the hearts of the audience and driving them either into conversion or repentance. And here's just a few lines from his sermon. There are black clouds of God's wrath now hanging directly over your heads, full of the dreadful storm and with big thunder. And were it not for the restraining hand of God, it would immediately burst forth upon you. The sovereign pleasures of God for the present stays those rough winds. Otherwise, it would come with fury and your destruction would come like a whirlwind, and you would be like the shaft of the summer threshing floor. It was just a small portion of his message that day. I like the words of Edward's sermon, 17th century earlier, the writer of Hebrews 
was encouraging those believers of that day and us as we read and study Hebrews, that there are dark, ominous clouds, warnings of judgment for us unless, and that unless gives us the hope. The ray of sunshine pokes through the clouds, and as we were heading out in, from Denver, there were some dark clouds ahead of us, and it had these shafts of light shining through. And that's what it's a picture of, is those shafts of light from the sunlight shining through those dark, ominous clouds. And that's what we have, is that hope. Though the world is difficult some days, our lives are rough sometimes, think of those shafts of light shining through to give us the strength that we need, the rays of light through this gathering storm clouds that bring us to a choice. Will we stand firm and heed that warning, or will we shrink back toward destruction, suffering, and the consequences of rebellion? Now, it's your, this side of your bulletin insert I've written to make sure that we heed the warnings of Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 39. Let us ask ourselves these probing questions. Don't just read them. Think about them. Mull them over. Let's ponder them this week. Let them search our innermost attitudes and direct our outward actions. First one is, where am I going in my spiritual life? Second, am I drawing nearer to God or drifting away from him? Third, am I standing firm in my confession of faith or am I shrinking back toward destruction? Fourth, am I gathering frequently with God's people or am I forsaking the assembly together? And fifth, am I actively stimulating my fellow believers to love and good works or am I damaging them in their walk? By answering these questions, you'll tend to be in one of two groups and so will I. Those who shrink back or those who stand firm. And regardless of which group you find yourself in today, and we make this decision every single day, Either we need to turn in repentance to our holy God, or we need to endure and stay on that path, that upward path, that rocky, that treacherous path as we grow in faith and obedience. Let us not neglect the opportunity to draw near to God today and to come clean. And let me just reread verses 24 and 25 because this gives us the strength that we need when we're struggling individually to stand strong with the Lord. And let us consider how we may spur one another on to love, toward love and good deeds, not giving up the meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as we see the day approaching. Let us continue on in, in endurance to serve the Lord. Now next week we'll move into the final segment of the book of Hebrews. And that segment is referred to as Christ is Superior for pressing on. And next week's title will be Common People of Uncommon Faith. And we'll get into the faith chapters 11 and 12. So read Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 through 7 for in preparation for next week's message. Let us pray. Father, we do thank you. We thank you for your blessing to us. We thank you for your word. We just pray, Father, as we trust and obey in you, as our daily walk with you, sometimes it'll be rough, Father, we understand this. Let us endure as we come together on a weekly basis 
And throughout the week, Father, let us encourage one another to love and good deeds. Let us never forsake the assembling of ourselves together, that we might not only be the temple of God individually, but as a group of believers coming together, we might reflect the temple of God and what you would have us to, to do and the way you would have us to live on a daily basis. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I pray that this message was a blessing and a time of learning from God's Word. Thank you so much for allowing me to be your guide, your mentor, but most importantly, I am your friend as I serve you through the Wisdom Trek Podcast and Journal each day. And as we take this trek of life together, let us always live abundantly, love unconditionally, listen intentionally, learn continuously, lend to others generously, lead with integrity, and leave a living legacy each day. I am Guthrie Chamberlain, reminding you to keep moving forward, enjoy your journey, and create a great day every day. See you next time for more wisdom from God's Word.